administration, small business restructuring, winding up, pre-packs. There's a bunch of options that can be worked through. And there's also Safe Harbor from Insolvent Trading, which is a informal restructuring approach. You are listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. episode 364 of Text Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. Times are tough. They always are in a way, but at the moment things are really tough for many of us. So what do you do if your business or your client's business hits a wall and you're not sure how to get out of the chamber? Ben Sul of Sul and Kettle, an insolvency lawyer in Sydney, has developed a list of 19 questions for you to ask your clients hitting a wall to gauge how to go on. Today, let's go through the first 10 questions. Here's Ben Sul of Sul and Kettle in Sydney. In the middle of our coronavirus, it was very quiet. Companies were on JobKeeper. There was a prohibition on insolvent trading. So the world of corporate insolvency was dead quiet. So I thought, okay, when, when everything comes back, what am I going to do? How do I distill or how can I try and distill down the types of questions that I'm going to ask these clients when they come back in the door. And I'm an insolvency lawyer, so my role is to advise. I'm not the liquidator. I'm not going after directors and trying to sue them for insolvent trading. I'm I'm the advisor, so I'm the uh, consultant. So what I did was I wrote down 19 questions and then started to work on those 19 questions. And my thinking was this. This would be a good blueprint for tax lawyers and commercial lawyers and tax accountants and and accountants who represent clients as well as internal clients, sorry, internal accountants who work internally in corporates to think about, well, how do they analyze options to help their employer or help their clients if they're the company, the client is basically insolvent or financially troubled in some way. If it's going to be the worst case scenario, which is a, which is a catastrophic collapse, an administration, a liquidation, a receivership, something like that, what are the questions that, that I'd go through? So I wrote down 19. Question one, what options do you have? First one is to look at the options. So basically the insolvency regime in Australia is very different to um, overseas. So it's totally different to um, America, which is a credit and possession model. So look at the options that you've got. Administration, small business restructuring, winding up, pre-packs. There's a bunch of options that can be worked through. And there's also safe harbor from insolvent trading, which is a informal restructuring approach. So first thing is to understand the options. Question two, is the company actually insolvent? Next thing is to actually look at the um, accounting issue, which is, is the company actually insolvent? Because it's going to make a lot of difference in terms of what you can do to restructure. If the company is not presently insolvent, then the options open up a bit, okay? Because when a company is insolvent, then more burdensome obligations come down on the directors. They can't trade whilst insolvent. They are more restricted in terms of restructuring and asset transfers. Whereas if they're solvent, those laws don't apply. If a company is paying its debts except the ATO, does that count as insolvent? The analysis about whether a company is insolvent is an analysis in itself and it's a a broad analysis. So you can't just restrict it to one type of unsecured debt or one one type of debt. You've you've got to look at the um, 
the cash flow position. So it's a cash flow test, not a balance sheet test. You look at the cash flow overall and tax debts are unsecured debts. Okay, so that means that uh, when they're uh, due to be paid, the company's got to have uh, sufficient resources to be able to pay them. So if you've got a client that's a uh, uh, small to medium-sized enterprise and it, ha it has a large tax debt, one of the phenomenon of the last two years has been the ATO hasn't been going after these um, clients of yours. So the ATO has decided not to take any action. Now, there was a whole bunch of warning letters that went out at the beginning of this year uh, to these types of taxpayers. But by and large, the ATO hasn't taken the action. So it's resulted in relatively large debts being built up by a lot of small to medium-sized enterprises across Australia. Now, they're unsecured debts, okay? So they're still debts. So in terms of cash flow, yeah, if, if, if the taxes haven't been paid, depending on whether there's an instalment arrangement in place, for the purposes of the insolvency analysis, there's, there's, there's no difference between say an unsecured debt to a supplier or an unsecured debt to employees and a tax debt. In terms of um, external administration, the pre-COVID uh, statistics were that something like 8,000 companies each year in Australia went into some sort of external uh, administration. During COVID that halved. So I think there's, there's a lot of companies that probably should have been wound up or should have gone into administration that didn't. So there's a catch up. But then there's also the disruption of our coronavirus and inflation and the difficulty of getting employees. And um, so you, I think it would be a, um, a fair estimate to say it'll, it'll go up to at least pre-COVID and probably higher um, incidences. No one knows. No one, there's, there's no uh, statistical model that I've seen about exactly how many companies are going to be wound up. And the really interesting thing from my perspective is that there's actually a hell of a lot more companies that are deregistered every year for failing to pay their ASIC fees. So it's something like five to one. So for every company that goes into external administration, that's an SME, so small to medium-sized enterprise, there's five times more than that that are deregistered by ASIC for not paying their ASIC fees. So there's a lot of tax agents out there that are just saying to their clients, look, you may have, say, a relatively small amount of tax debt or a, or a small amount of debt, why don't you just let ASIC deregister the entity rather than paying, say, ten dollars to $20,000 to go through the, um, the process to properly wind, wind it up? That's a big issue in terms of the smaller space. So the second question was, are you actually insolvent? You're an accountant. So in yes. terms of cash flow, in terms of being, un, being unable to pay debt, there's, there's two different tests. One is the balance sheet test. Uh, the law of Australia is, is that the balance sheet test is something applicable to have a look at. Okay, in terms of understanding the picture of whether the business is insolvent, but the key test is the cash flow test, which is, is, is the company able to pay its debts as and when they, they are due to be paid. And that test is important because if you're dealing with a client that is financially troubled but not insolvent, the obligations on the director of that company and, and the, the scope in which they can restructure or they can deal with their assets is vastly increased. Whereas if the company is actually insolvent, and I'm talking about not just temporary illiquidity, but an endemic shortage of working capital, something, a position where it's very clear they're not going to get out of it, okay? If the company is insolvent, then one, there's a prohibition on um, insolvent trading. Two, there's restrictions on asset transfers out. So if you want to restructure and transfer assets between entities, you're a lot more tightly controlled and you've got to be much more careful with doing that. That would be a start point. Now, uh, the hurdle you're going to have is that 
one characteristic of, of um, small to medium-sized enterprises that um, are insolvent are, are, or are approaching it is their books and records tend to uh, deteriorate. They tend to put off getting up-to-date accounts. They tend to put off getting reports done. So um, if you're an accountant, you might find that it gets harder to analyze whether a company is insolvent or not if they come to see you because the books and records are probably not up to scratch. But if you can go through it and actually develop a bit of a, an empirical theory about their position and whether they are solvent or are not, then that's going to help you to advise them. My gut feeling is that at the time one looks at whether somebody is solvent or insolvent, they're usually insolvent. Well, look, by the time they come to see me, they are for sure. But if you're the tax accountant and if you're doing BASs each quarter and if you are having a, a, a review process with that client, perhaps you, you can catch them um, a little bit earlier. And it may come at the point where they've got to put some funds in. So, for example, I had a client that I spoke to about a month ago who was putting money in each quarter to basically meet working capital deficiencies. So, I don't think he was insolvent. Okay, my my job wasn't to analyze whether he was or not. It was just to basically help him with uh, the restructure options that he was going through. But as long as he, as that particular client could continue to contribute money, he was not in a position where he was insolvent in terms of the law of um, Australia. I think with him, it's when he decided to to stop contributing money. I think at that point in time, there would have been deficiencies in, in being able to pay debts. He was going through a process with his internal accountant, uh, his employed accountant, and also his external account to think about how long he had. That would be an example of someone who is not insolvent when they came to see me, but they could become insolvent if they decided not to contribute more working cap, cap capital at any point in time. From what I've seen, insolvency happens very quickly through tax debt. When the going gets tough, the first thing that doesn't get paid is tax, especially BAS. The first thing that doesn't get paid is BAS, and hence you already have insolvency when the tax debt doesn't get paid. Yeah, there's a famous quote from, I think it's F. Scott Fitzgerald, who said that bankruptcy happens very slowly and then very quickly. The period of uh, deterioration can can go over a long period of time, okay? But then all of a sudden, when the tax debts start to build up and accrue, when funding needs to be advanced, say for guarantees for building projects, or there's claims that, ju that just can't be paid, a company can go under what appears to be a very quick time period. But I think when you look at the uh, deterioration, it, it, it takes place over a relatively long period of time. Good. So that was the second question. What's the third question? Question three. How do you work out whether the company is insolvent? This goes back to the cash flow test. It goes to looking at the metrics. So basically, uh, current uh, receivables would be the uh, starting point. So this is more of a technical process of, of how an accountant would look at the insolvency of a company at any point in time. And when it gets down to the wire... I would say that accountants would need to look at this every month. So look at the current receivables position, make adjustments for any debts that can't be that can't be recovered, looking at the timing of loans that need to be repaid. Is this a short-term debt or, or, or can terms be extended? So the process of being able to fund month to month is something that an accountant would need to look at every month. And also, as, as I 
uh, suggested before, when a company is insolvent, they tend to let the books and records slide a bit. So the receivables that are on the books aren't necessarily going to be as high quality as what you might expect because they're not going in and um, adjusting. And they're also allowing older debts that they owe to slide until a point in time when the creditor uh, demands they're paid or uh, threatens to cut off the supply. The month-to-month analysis would be the next step going forward as to as to being in that um, accountant's position who thinks, okay, well, it may not be insolvent now, but then the next step is that the process of getting down to nuts and bolts. And in my experience, public practice accountants, so the accountant who acts for the client, who does their BAS returns, who does all sorts of things for the client, doesn't tend to go into that depth just because they don't have time. And also because they don't want to go into a bookkeeping exercise where they're forced to sit down with the client and actually go through the accounts line by line to make sure that the quality is there so that the information is reliable. And they you know, they don't want to go into the process of looking at the prime accounting information, going through receipts, going through invoices. Question four, is a private treaty viable or an impossible dream? Next thing is something of a um, impossible dream. So whether a private treaty can be negotiated. So in theory, at least, and this may work if there's a creditor who is very well known or there's related parties, but insolvency is about being un- unable to pay debts when they're due to be paid. So if you can get an extension of terms or you can negotiate or you can do a debt for equity swap or you can do something, okay, in theory, at least a private treaty is available to be able to deal with a restructure. So, so that would be the, uh, the next thing. Is there some sort of deal that can be done? Bad news is the ATO, going back to your example, isn't going to do a debt for equity swap. They aren't going to extend terms uh, significantly. So it would probably be if there's other related parties. But uh, payment arrangements with the ATO would fall under private treaty, correct? That's true. There's some extension of terms depending on, but, but I'm talking more in terms of dealing with the overall problem. So extending terms might not put the company in a position where it is solvent and able to pay its debts if there's just too much debt. What I'm talking about is basically dealing with the debts in a final way. So for example, I had a client who was in the transport industry. They had about 120 staff, 100 trucks, and their main debt was one to the ATO, but but the other was one of their, their key group of our suppliers that does supplied tires and fuel. And so because they dealt with these people for 20 years or more, they were able to do a very effective deal with them, which was a debt for equity swap, which was, okay, look, we owe you all this debt and it's built up and it's all out of control and we, we can't pay you, but are you willing to do something to basically get more involved with us? And it required them as well to keep supplying the goods and the uh, materials and the fuels, but they were prepared to get more involved because they wanted to keep the client and they saw it as an opportunity. Now, the ATO isn't going to do that. They aren't going to go into a debt for equity swap. They aren't going to do any formal arrangement. The best they will do is extend terms. Question five, what caused the insolvency? Okay, so when you read about insolvency, what you read about is people talking about problems with cash flow, people talking about being unable to pay debt, uh, failing to keep records. You know, the, So what I'd point out to you, though, is, is that most of what you read about insolvency in Australia is discussions of the symptoms rather than the causes. So having a lot of debt, having poor controls, failing to keep books and records, having in, inadequate cash flow, I would suggest to you is a symptom of an underlying root cause. So the next step would be to 
have a discussion with the client and start to think about, okay, well, what's the root cause? Now, my experience is that when you get to that point, you have a discussion with a client. What I find is this, I find that that a lot of these clients of mine are males between the age of 45 to 55. They could have a divorce, they could have depression, they could have, uh, they could have alcohol problems, and they've taken their eye off the ball. There shouldn't be a reason for the business to fail in the if if they'd kept their eye on the ball, they'd hired the right people, they'd kept increasing their prices, they'd shied away from bad clients, they'd made good decisions. If they'd kept their eye on the ball, you would think they would have been able to make the micro adjustments you need to make to be able to avoid the bigger problems. So root cause, in my experience, for smaller to medium-sized clients is actually related to the directors in their lives. Now, as a professional advisor, it's very hard to get in that uh, discussion because people don't want to change, you know, and so I think the system, one thing you should point out to people in this supposition is, look, the system is stacked against you, okay? If you can't pay your debts, you're a trading whilst insolvent, the system in terms of the legal system uh, requires you to go into um, administration, in which case the chances are there's a, you know, 95% chance you will be wound up and uh, the assets will be sold off. And the economics of it is that the system is against you. And unless you can really pick up your game, those assets are going to go to someone else who can use them better. So root cause is important to uh, discuss because uh, it may well be that people don't have the heart for it anymore or they should be retiring. That's the next thing I'd have a look, look at. So I wouldn't allow a client to get away with a superficial analysis of uh, the problem. Now, it may want to be they don't want to hear it or they don't want to engage, but it's at least important to, to, to think about this as being a professional advisor, thinking about helping people and thinking about what you're doing to help them and help them to analyze the problem that, that they've got, which may not be about books and records or cash flow problems. It may just be because they, they just can't put up their prices because it's too competitive in the market. They haven't updated the the offering for years. Um, they could be depressed. They might not want to work as hard. I don't know, but root cause analysis is something very important. Question six, what type of business is it? Okay, the business type is the next thing I'd have a look at. I'd be thinking about the business that they're in because if they're in a business with a lot of secured assets, so that means all their plant and equipment is secured. If they're in a some sort of retail lease that they're, that they're tightly structured by, uh, there might not be a lot of room to move, okay? Whereas if they're in a ser- service-based enterprise where it's based on their relationships and it, it's based on a business where there isn't a lot of secured debt, uh, they might have a lot more room to move than when you compare it to other types of enterprises. So Australia is predominantly made up of service-based enterprises now, okay? So that means that restructuring in itself may be more, may be are more easily available because, for example, like you and I, if our structures are, uh, you know, go, get wound up, presumably I can go off and I can become a lawyer at a new firm and you can go off and you can, can, can become a tax accountant at a new new firm as well. You may lose some whip, you may lose our receivables, but the goodwill is something that is attached to the director. Um, so that would make restructuring a lot easier. Whereas if you're in an enterprise with a lot of plant equipment, it's all secured, you've got a re- retail lease, you, you know, you, you're dealing with some large corporate that won't budge, not going to have as much opportunity to restructure in those industries. 
Question seven, what reputational risks does the business have? The reputational risk is what I'd look at next. I'd be thinking, okay, well, looked at where the company's insolvent, the type of industry it's in, the mindset of the director. I'd be thinking about, okay, well, if they if the company restructures, what then? Okay, what if you basically go into administration, you do a docker and you come, come out of it? Now, one of the problems you might have is if you're in an industry, say you're in construction and you've burnt all of your suppliers or you've burnt the builders that you work with, maybe you're not going to be able to get a new gig. Maybe your position is is so undermined by the process that you need to rethink the way you do it in the first place. Okay, we, we need to think about it. Whereas, for example, if if you are uh, if you're an Uber driver, theoretically, you could go bankrupt and you come straight straight out, and no one would know. Okay, in some industries, say you're building in uh, construction, there is a lot of requirement for a relation for for high quality are relationships with trade unions, with builders. And so these people might hold a grudge if you phoenix the company or if you 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 engage in some restructure that's going to cut them out, that's going to cut out their employees, that's going to abandon contracts that you don't want to fulfill. So that would be the next thing. I'd, I'd have a thing, okay, okay, think about is the reputation of the business able to withstand whatever restructuring process you go go through. Question eight, what is the size of the debt? In the last year and a half, there's been a new process brought in called a small business restructuring process. And it's, it was brought in by other government, one, to deal with the post-coronavirus surge or anticipated surge in insolvent small enterprises. But also, it's a uh, reform that's uh, looking to reduce costs and to streamline the process. What it means is, and this is the big picture, is that administration, the administrators appointed and they take control of the of the enterprise that they're um, appointed over. So theoretically, at least, are involved in the day-to-day work of trading and the work of the uh, decisions that, that are made. Whereas the new small business process, the insolvency practitioner appointed is not involved in the day-to-day trading. The directors maintain their day-to-day control. They still need to come up with a plan and they still need to go through the insolvency practitioner who's appointed to basically try and get a compromise with the a, a compromise on the debt, okay, into restructure. But what it means is if the you're a company that owes less than a um, million dollars, you have the opportunity to go through this restructuring process rather than go through a much more expensive, much more laborious um, administration process. So that's the big opportunity. So in terms of debt, the amount of the debt is um, important. The other thing I'd like to point out is that this this is a quote of um, economist who said, you owe your banks $10,000, they own you. You owe your banks $10 million and you own them. And so the psychology of debt is a little bit unfair in that it, it probably would be easier to give effect to a restructure where there's millions and millions of dollars of debt. Okay, because there'll be banks on board, the ATR will have better case officers, there'll be an administration process which which can be dealt with in a more um, efficient way. Whereas if you owe a relatively small amount of debt, you're not going to get any time from the ATR in terms of trying to work through a deal. Um, administration is too expensive, so your options are actually uh, restricted. So what I would say is that the smaller the debt that's owed, the harder it is, it, it is actually to get a, a settlement. And what's the threshold for this small business restructure? It's a position of a, a, 
of total debt on the balance sheet of $1 million. $1 Australian million. $1 Australian million, yeah. And that includes tax debt. A condition of the uh, the restructuring process is that employees need to be paid in full. Okay, so you need to make sure that all the employees are paid up to date. So that means that the employees aren't included within with, within that. Um, Question nine. Does a secured creditor have an all PAP? Once upon a time, there was a, um, a security that was called a uh, debenture, a fixed and floating charge. And that was a, um, a security interest over all the fixed and the floating assets that a corporate entity held. Reform that brought in a general security agreement and a all present after acquired uh, security interest called an all PAP, okay, which is which is something to look out for because if you're acting for a client and they have an all PAP, so they've they've entered into some sort of a facility agreement or they've entered into a deal with a with someone who they owe this general security agreement to, and then that's going to severely restrict your options in terms of restructuring uh, the entity. And one thing I see a lot now is that uh, by the time a, a potential client calls us, uh, someone like me, uh, they've already gone gone to some sort of receivables funder or they've 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 gone to some to find someone on some last resort loan with a huge interest rate. And this uh, facility also includes a, a general security um, agreement. So that means that the restructure is subject to approval by the lend- lender. So that means if you want to restructure, you know, you go through an administration process or you go through an informal process or a safe harbor process, whichever process you choose, they are going to get a veto on whatever you want to do. So that's something very important to I consider. This OPEC is probably only relevant for larger, medium to large businesses, correct? Small to medium business usually don't have an OPEC. In the past, I would have said yes, but presently I'd say no, because um, one thing I'm seeing is that small to medium-sized enterprises are trying to basically get loans from different types of different types of providers. So, so for example, one example is if you want to borrow against your receivables. So you want to factor your debts. Okay. It is common now in that type of arrangement, not only to seek security over the account, so to seek security over the uh, the invoices that are the subject of the factoring arrangement, but the financier also provides a general security agreement as well and says, we need you to sign this because we want to have a facility that's linked to your assets. So I'd, I'd say, uh, no, I, I'd say that most last resort loans today would also include an all-pack, would include a facility whereby the financier basically takes a security interest over everything that is unsecured. I see. And the acronym is OPA? All-PAP. So A-L-L space P-A-A-P. And what it stands for is all present and after acquired property. So can you spell that again? So A-L-L space P A A P all PAP. Ah, okay. So all as in all and then P A A P. Yep. All and and the so it's an acronym for all present and after acquired property. And so this all PAP people might have without even realizing they have it. Because they just signed everything that put, was put in front of them because they were desperate for the money and they don't even realize they have an all PAP. Exactly right. And it may well be as well that they've they've gone and they've uh, borrowed money and they've thought, look, this this is going against my my house. So the so the uh, collateral they've offered is a uh, mortgage. 
okay? And so they think, okay, well, look, I'm borrowing this money and it's going against my house. But then at the same time as that, they've also signed uh, a guarantee and in the guarantee, then, then there's a general security agreement that they've provided on the side of that as a director. So it's now a normal uh, position where if you're going for, uh, for a last star resort loan, you may be thinking, okay, well, the, I'll, I'll be offering part of my house as a collateral. But then when you go through the documents, you, you've got a guarantee, you've got an ORPAP, you've got the mortgage over your house as well. So everything you've got becomes uh, secured in some way. It's like, a, it's like a swarm of bees that's just flying over your assets, uh, ready to pounce. Question 10. How angry are the creditors? The 10th thing I think about is this. I think about the creditors and how angry they are. Okay. And why I say that is because one thing I see is that sometimes there's very concentrated groups that are very strongly opposed to whatever the restructure is you want to do. Okay. So that applies not just to the votes, okay, but also a strategic opposition they're in. Okay. So if you upset, say, the CFMEU, if you're in a building in a construction, they may try and implement industrial action against you down the track. Okay. If you upset the landlords in your area. They may refuse to lease you a new site or you may be in such a, you, you may be relying on such a small group of landlords that you're just unable to get more sites. If you're in building in no construction and you've upset one of the, the builders in your area, you may not be able to get the other builders on board when, when you come back. So identifying in advance where there's any creditors that are absolutely furious at you, that I think is important in terms of being able to help judge the success of the restructure that you're going to go into. Welcome back. So these were the first 10 questions you should go through with clients who struggle to pay their debts. In the next episode, we will go through the remaining nine questions to ask. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.